Guardian Unlimited. Guardian Unlimited. The Rugby World Cup show. Sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. Well, hello again. Welcome to Guardian Unlimited's Rugby World Cup show. I'm Ian Payne. And if you've been born south of the equator, congratulations. If you're a Northern Hemisphere rugby fan, what are you to make of it? Coming up, we're going to concentrate on England. Just how bad is the situation? Georgia, the minnows that keep biting the big boys, is the gap between the minnows and the rest of rugby catching up? Or is it just the minnows and the Northern Hemisphere? Or are the Northern Hemisphere teams going backwards? Uh, Also, we're speaking to a former Wallabies captain on their trip to Cardiff. And you can get in touch with us. All you've got to do is just go to the following site, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. As I say, I'm in London. I'm Ian Payne. I've been watching the whole miserable event for the Northern Hemisphere on the television. Uh, the Guardian's chief rugby writer, Rob Kitson, has, I'm afraid, been watching it in the flesh from Paris. You survived, Rob? <laughs> so, so far, so okay. far. Former England international Gareth Chilcott's on the line as well. How are you, Gareth? I'm very well. Glad to be home after Paris. I was going to say, you were there as well. And slumming it here in the studio with me for the moment is uh, Rob Bagchi, who's also from The Guardian, who watched the England game um, on a television set, I presume. I did indeed. OK, right. Let's, let's kick things off with the two boys who was actually there. Uh, looking at it objectively, on a television, from home... Rob, uh, it looked pretty dire. Was it as bad as it looked there? Well, at least you were nice and you know cosy at home on your sofa. I presume it it was uh, it wasn't very edifying in in any shape or form. I, I thought it might be one of those games that if you watched it on television, it might have a bit more of an intensity, you know, to the, in, in the close quarter work and what have you. But everybody I've spoken to says exactly the same thing. It, it was dire from you know wherever you were watching it. it uh, you know, I think not to score a point, um, whoever you're playing with in a game of rugby for 80 minutes is, is pretty terrible. Terrible. I just had a quick look at the, the stats, and there's only four teams who've never scored, a, never scored a point in the World Cup match. How about this for a, a foursome? The Ivory Coast, Canada, uh, uh, Spain, and Namibia. And then, of course, there's a fifth, which is uh, England. So it's uh, not a very distinguished list, is it? It isn't. Um, there are uh, a f- distinguished few who have played international rugby for England. Gareth Chilcott, you did it 14 times. I'd love to get your take on what you saw on Friday evening. What do you think? Well, I was appalled, really. You know? I mean, you, you can't really... I, I just think that the fact that we went into a, a big pool game, we prepared for so many months, years for it, we knew this was going to be the big one. And we just went in there with no idea of how we were actually going to beat South Africa. I, I actually think South Africa didn't even get out of first gear. That's the worrying thing, was actually South Africa weren't made to play. They just did enough. I think tactically we were inept. Um, we didn't make the right decisions at the right times, and we just weren't physical enough. Um, it, it was very, very frustrating. And can I say, I left the stadium, and um, I've never, in all my years of watching England rugby, and I don't think I've missed a game for decades, um, heard so much animosity to players, which is sad, and the coaching, uh, as I did Friday night, I think people felt really cheated on, on the way they performed. It's difficult to say in just you know, half an hour in a podcast what the problems are, but just looking at it from a technical point of view, Gareth, uh, were those players good enough to beat South Africa, given the right coaching, or not? Well, I, I actually think that the positive that came out of Friday for me is you should be able to put lines through players' names and say never again. Um, I know that sounds a bit harsh, and I'm not one to just say chuck people out because that's an easy thing to say in disappointment. But there were average club players completely 
um, out of their depth. And I think the management, the setup of the English game, it's all, it's a bigger picture. The fact that we never really had a settled team coming into this World Cup, when, when we knew we weren't as good as we thought we were, we sort of had a settled team playing regularly, playing together. The odd injury means somebody's coming up into a, a settled setup. Rather than, I mean, we played two different games against French on the warm-ups. We played a different game against, uh, a different side against Wales, different ones against America, different against uh, South Africa. You know, it's bitty, it's disjointed. It looks like we're, we're, we're rudderless and headless. Yeah, Rob Bagchie's with us in the studio. What was your take on it? And this idea, as Gareth was saying, of not playing the same team two matches in a row ever. I think it, it's terrible, really. I mean, the, England seem to be hamstrung by this flip chart culture among the management. They, they have these Royal Marines training sessions. They go off and take inspirational quotes from business leaders. But none of it actually works in enhancing the players' skills. You know, you can teach quickness of thought, but you can't teach quickness of legs. And it seems to me that they're obsessed with this David Brent culture of learning new things all the time, how to think quicker, to think their way out of a crisis. But the actual players themselves don't seem up to it. I think, I mean, just, just butting in for a second here, I mean, you, I'm not trying to make excuses for England for, for a second, but I mean, you, you have got to remember that last week they had a, you know, it is desperately bad luck to you lose both your fly halves in the um, in the in the lead up to the match. Yeah, but we didn't we didn't even have a penalty kick, so why do we need a fly half? But I mean I think Rob, just talking on that, I mean you've got to got to look at selection of the squad in the first place. Oh absolutely. And you know, we last last Friday night we had two scrum halves on the bench. In you know, sadly, uh, Robinson went off, then Noon went off, we had Richards, who is a lively player at Scrum Half, playing out of position. Um, you know, it we had two fly halves. We had Cat, Stroke Farah, and Johnny Wilkinson. You know, who haven't really played worthwhile rugby for four years. It, it With was, his record, he was going to he was going to collapse at some stage. It was very strange. I mean, you know, if you, I think it goes back to the original selection of the squad, didn't it? They were relying on Andy Farrell to to fill that third fly half slot, if you like, in an emergency. Never really thinking it would happen. Now, you know, it's easy after the event, isn't it? But they, they, Brian Ashton deliberately picked experienced players. Number one, that was his priority. Whether he thought, whether he could see this coming, that he that he thought it would be an absolute nightmare, and he just wanted to limit the damage and not let uh, some of the young guys be be maybe uh, traumatised by by a terrible experience. I, I'm I'm not sure. It hasn't come out. But yet. can I, can I sorry to butt in against Rob? Yeah. I coached with Brian when I retired from Bath. I coached for a year, and we won a double with with me and Brian. And Brian's better than this, you know. He, oh, you know, for, for for me not to see young players playing running through space, we're obsessed with this physical contact where we run into players and of course running into South Africans is a is a is a bad day at the office. If if uh, he's better than this, what is the problem? Are you saying it's nothing to do with the coach? Well no, I just I am disappointed I'll have to say, I'll say it to his face. I'm disappointed in Brian that it is something to do with the coach because he, he seems to have lost direction and as I said earlier, I mean our tactics tactically and he's got to take full responsibility, him and John Wells, his tactics for Friday night to me seem to be well, let's pick our biggest side, hope we can match them physically, and hope it comes okay on the night. Well, against top international sides, that don't happen. You've not played the same team twice. You've not trained. You've had injuries in a week. You know, you need something. I think majority of the English supporters, and it was like a home fixture Friday night, mm. it was a fantastic atmosphere until about four minutes into the game. <laughs> Um, then it went wrong. You know, they just wanted England to go out and give it a little bit like Wales did against Australia. Give it their best. They lose 
outclassed, never mind. Let's go down and do something. And I think that was the sad indictment of Friday. We just laid down and well, died. It's, it's so out of character for Brian, as you say, that you know he's he's made his career, you know, by, by empowering players, hasn't he? By by challenging them to have a go, whatever the situation. Absolutely. And uh, this this side just haven't done that. I mean, I I happened to go to, to see Portugal play New Zealand yesterday down in Lyon, and Portugal gave it much more of a go. It, in, in far um, inferior odds, if you like, for, for them winning that match. And yet they played proper rugby, they gave it a glash, and uh, it, you know, they were far from disgraced yeah. at the end and felt, conceded 100 points, but by uh, the standards of what, they could, have, what could have happened, it was, uh, they did very well. It's this impression that England has lost its passion, and that, to me, is, is just so heartbreaking. Well, I think that's the nub of it, isn't it? Why? I mean, that, that's what it looks like. They look flat. They look sort of leaden-footed. Now, they, if you talk to people, as I have done, they swear it's not a physical thing. Now, I, I've been speaking to Martin Corey uh, in particular today, and I, I said to him, look, is it a question? The Southern Hemisphere, they, they do look sharper, fresher somehow. There, there's a snap to it, which doesn't appear to be there in the Northern Hemisphere teams. Now, is this a consequence of all the, the, the league rugby, the Premiership rugby, the Heineken Cup, the, the endless treadmill that we know so much about? Is it the fact that when they think they're fit, it's a big game, they're all up for it, but when they actually press the button, it just isn't happening purely because there's... You know, they're being asked to press the button so many times. Now, he doesn't think so. I mean, he, he perhaps would say that because he's uh, obviously got loyalties to Leicester. But it, it does seem to me that something there is something, as Gareth uh, says, there's something more fundamental than perhaps than just a coach or, or a few, you know, admittedly elderly, uh, elderly players. A lot, a lot of you have been having your opinions. Um, some of you having a little dig, others just depressed. Blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport to have your say. Rocco Lajocco, which presumably means he's north of the border, says, oh my God, I think you should turn to Churchill. What delight I felt when I saw that armada of tiny ships plucking our brave boys off the beaches. I think that's the only hope. Everyone, man the cars and boats to France and bring as many of the defeated of England as you can. History will remember 2007, says Rocco Lajocco. Sorry, can't resist it. And Nimroy Troit says, a key factor in building a successful side is leadership. How many captains have England had since 2003? Wilkinson, Robinson, Corey, Sanderson, Cat, Vickery, with players like Dawson, Delalio also chipping in. For whatever reason, this lack of consistency has not bred strength, success and cohesion. A strong skipper who is the best in his position is absolutely crucial. What do you think on that point, Rob Bagchi? I mean, that... That's a, a fairly sensible point, I would have thought. I think so. I think Clive Woodward always maintained that he wanted 15 leaders on the pitch. And leadership skills seem to be things that, that the players have picked up. But, but there seems to be muddled thought. You look at someone like Ben Kay, who I know in 2003 made the ultimate mess up in, uh, when he could have gone over for a try. But th that little chip kick seems symptomatic of the muddled thinking of, of, of what's happening to England. They may have leaders all over the park, but they're not actually giving anything else. They're not bringing anything else to the table. I think, I think you can only pick the best captain who's available, though, can't you? And I think they've, you know, it has been a problem. I, I suppose by, by picking Vickery uh, as your captain with, with the sort of injury record that he's got, you're always a slight hostage of fortune. But then again, you know, that, you, you, you're never in a million years going to foresee that he's going to get banned in the week of, a, of the South African game. Um, you're never going to give the captaincy to Johnny Wilkinson with his uh, injury record when Brian took over. So, I mean, to an extent, he's, he's had to, to go down that route. Uh, um, and, and gamble, I suppose, that, that Vickery would give him some consistency, I, but, you know. I don't always prescribe to the captain thing anyway. I think you need great leaders like Johnson was and stuff, but, you know, when you're an international playing at that level, you've got to be self-motivated, you've got to make decisions, not just for you, but you've got to bring people in, and, you know, Will Carlin played in his first ever cap, you know, but he had great experience with players around him. 
that you know got him through things and and I just think that we we seem to be looking over our shoulders at other for other people to make things happen and you know rugby men know their job and you know in the bars and clubs of, of Paris Saturday night uh, sorry Friday night you hear different views and it wasn't just about the disappointment it was about too many overseas players in our game the premiership is is just slow and slugging it's just about battling and attrition and you know then it's well you know the coaches ain't right there's not just we pay too much money to you know all these things was coming out in the in the frustration of England's performance and but when you sit back and listen to these people they've got a point there is a bigger picture the English rugby have got to address sooner rather than later well obviously this is something that we could go on and on about dissecting what went wrong with England the fact is that there's still a world cup and England is still in it is it significant, Rob, do you think, that Tonga beats Samoa? And does that make England's passage a little easier? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you could look at that two ways. If you're an optimist or a pessimist, I mean, you could, in a way, you could say, crikey, if, if Tonga beats Samoa, uh, who didn't play very well, by the way, uh, you could say, crikey, maybe England are going to, you know, they've got to struggle against Samoa and Tonga. But, but are know? Samoa that good? I mean, they've lost to Tonga. They had 50 points put past them by South Africa. Uh, I, are they I, as good as we're saying they are? I saw the first 20 minutes, half an hour. I was at, well, at the Samoa-South Africa game uh, last week, and it was, the, it was the most electric first half hour of a, of a game you'd probably but the match see. is 80 minutes, Rob. They didn't last 80 minutes, but there were factors in that result. I, I wouldn't read too much in the, into the 50-point margin. I think they had a, a real rough deal with the referee. Uh, I, I think their heads went down. They, they, really, they got denied a, a perfectly good try. Um, they, they, they just had a real, real, real uh, um, rough end of the stick, and I think that won't necessarily happen against England. I think they'll be spurred on by the fact that they've lost to Tonga, if, if, if anything. They haven't got the greatest line-out in the world. Um, you know, set-piece, they're, they're, they're merely adequate. But I, 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 I just think they picked the wrong... They, they chose the wrong game plan against Tonga. They, were, they went for a far too conservative sort of kicking game. I think they played them a lot, haven't lost to them for seven years, and thought, well, we know how to beat these boys, and, uh, and just got it terribly wrong. I, I personally think they'll come out and give England a real good go. Right. But I think the fact remains, you know, Tonga, Samoa don't have to be that good to trouble this English side. I think we've got three poor sides, Tonga, Samoa and England, battling out for a second place to go out in the quarterfinal. Right, OK, let's take a straw poll then from our three experts who are talking about England. Gareth, first of all, do you think England will qualify? I think um, there'll be a lot of words, yes, I think they will, and then there'll be another embarrassing day against Australia. OK. Uh, Rob Bagchi, do you think England will go through? I think so. They will. I think it's down to Wilkinson playing and I think uh, Barkley too. But I think they will scrape through. But again, like Gareth says, I think they'll face humiliation against Australia. Rob Kitson. Uh, I, well, I have to say, yes, yes, they'll go through, but by default, uh, play Australia in that quarterfinal. Now, I, I, I slightly different in the sense that I, I do think England have got one big game in them. They, they, these, are, these are good players we're talking about. They may all be collectively underperforming maybe there is maybe there is one game left in them but I uh, you know you've got to be honest and say quarterfinals looks the, the most at the moment if they're lucky which kind of wraps up the England debate let's move it on Gareth Chilcott thank you very much for joining us and uh, let's hope that uh, none of your predictions come true but I'm afraid like you I think they probably will Gareth thanks very much for sparing us the time you're welcome Guardian Unlimited the Rugby World Cup show sponsored by Magnus Let's talk about another Northern Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere game, and that was Wales against Australia. Wales getting a little bit closer, but in the end outclassed, even though Wales had home advantage. Delighted to say we can bring in a World Cup winning captain, Nick Farr-Jones, who won the World Cup 
at Twickenham against England in the early 90s. Nick, what did you make of the, the Australian performance and the Australian performance in this World Cup overall so far? Look, I, I mean, I thought in Cardiff that the boys would be very happy to win. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it was a crucial match, especially after we all, unfortunately, for, for your listeners, um, you know, watched the debacle, which was Friday night. Um, I mean, that should pit Australia now against England um, or Samoa. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a crucial win for, for Australia, and they'll be pleased to get away with the win. I thought the first half, half was special, um, special for a number of reasons, um, that we got away to a 25-3 lead against a, a team at their home ground. But I think very special because we had a young guy who... who Stepped up to the plate by the name of Beric Barnes in, 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 the, in the number 10 jersey. I mean, Steve Larkin, who's the linchpin of that team, um, pulled out because of the injury on the final day. And, you know, the, the young fella stepped up and, and just had a wonderful 20, 30 minutes and, and really set the course. The one thing I would say about the Australian victory was, though, that they'll go away, they will analyse the whole match, they'll analyse the second half. And the sad statistics of the second half was that we got dusted by 17 points to seven. So, in a way, that's that's the bad news. The good news is we won't get too complacent with our victory against Wales, and, and I'm sure the boys will be very focused for the next two games against Fiji and Canada in preparation for a, for a quarter-final in Marseille. Yeah, there's obviously going to be stiffer tests ahead. A lot of people are giving various opinions about the uh, Australian performance. Uh, Zojo's blogged us. He thinks, I think, Wales did OK considering their build-up, but the uh, Australians look awesome. Chipper the Panda, however, says the Aussies were flattered. They're a distant third behind New Zealand and South Africa at present. How do you think the Aussies, Nick, are matching up against New Zealand and South Africa? I, I tend to agree with the latter opinion that we are at the moment not a distant, but we're certainly third um, behind New Zealand and South Africa. That you know, New Zealand, in my view, is, is almost daylight ahead, but South Africa looked very, very good, very competent, strong up front, and they've got some fantastic backs. So, yeah, those two teams look destined. Um, I've got to say, sadly, to meet in the final. But um, you know, we all know that Australia, just as we did in 2003, um, write them off before a big quarter-final, a big semi-final, and um, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. So I think the guys will be, one, very happy to have won in Cardiff, two, happy with a lot of aspects of their game. Uh, I thought the scrum was a lot better. Um, you know, when, when you asked me to reflect on the first game in Lyon against Japan... Um, terrible first half, very good second half, but the scrum worried me. And this is the area that we could come under a lot of pressure. And let's assume, and, and I think it's a fairly good assumption uh, at this stage, that Australia play England in a quarterfinal in Marseille. Um, that is the area that you will try and take psychological advantage from. Not, not just psychologically, but physically. And that if the referee lets the scrum go the full distance, then... Yeah, it's going to be a tough day at the office for Australia against England, I can assure you, even as badly as England are playing at the moment, because our scrum is our Achilles heel. Why, why do you think, Nick, I'd be fascinated to hear you, your view on this, why do you think that there seems to be an even bigger gap now between the best Southern Hemisphere countries and the Northern Hemisphere countries? To be honest, I struggle to answer that question. Um, the, the game is professional around the world. It's you know we, we all know that a lot of our southern hemisphere players get poached to play in the northern hemisphere because there's probably more money when you convert your currencies to to our currencies. Um, I, I I can't answer that. I, I really don't know. I can't assume that we've got better coaches. I can't assume that we've got more physical guys. Um, is it that 
we've got better climactic conditions. Is it that we enjoy running into each other um, <laughs> at, the, at a younger age and become more physical and athletic? I, I seriously, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, we're only two weeks into this World Cup, and that is the big thing that's become very clear. Yeah. Um, the Southern Hemisphere nations have prospered. The Northern Hemisphere nations, for whatever reason, have gone, if not sideways, backwards. Let's bring in the Guardian's chief rugby writer, Rob Kitson, who, who's in Paris and has been watching it. Why do you think there's such a, a huge gulf? I thought with the professional game, the, the, the gap was supposed to be getting smaller. Well, I have to say, I was hoping that Nick would give us a few more uh, tips than that. I think, he's, <laughs> I think he's keeping them under, under, under wraps. But, I mean, it is, a, it is a really thorny debate. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I... I just wonder, you know, the, 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 as I said before, the, the number of games that the, the top guys in the Northern Hemisphere play, the amount of training sessions, the length of the season. Now, you know, if you're talking about George Gregan or, or Stephen Larkham, you know, they, 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 they peak for very specific times of the year. Uh, they don't have to have the same grind every month, every week that, uh, that a lot of the guys do up here. And I just, I, you know, it, it may be maybe not the whole answer, but I do think that must be a part of it. Uh, Nick Farr-Jones, just a final point before you have to go. Could you tell us, is, is there anything about this World Cup that surprised you at all? I suppose it would be the, the weakness of the Northern Hemisphere teams. The, the performance of Ireland has surprised me. The performance of England has, has shocked me almost. The performance of Wales hasn't been wonderful. I mean, I think that England winning in 2003, one, they deserved it because they dominated the world for two or three years beforehand. Yes, they were coming down the, side of, the other side of the... Um, at the slope, and, and because of that, didn't go on to defend their World Cup, unlike the other four teams that had won it. Do you think, final point, Nick, that the Northern Hemisphere have actually gone backwards from 2003, or have the Southern Hemisphere just pushed on miles ahead? I don't think we've pushed on. I don't think we've played any, any better rugby than we have over the years. I mean, teams can be cyclical, but, but I really expected, you know, watching the performance of Wales when they won the Grand Slam you know, a few years ago, watching Ireland last year, convincingly beat Australia um, in, in Dublin, watching, you know, even the Scots do, do OK from time to time. I, I just expected it, and, and, and the French particularly. The French, and, and you know, on their home ground, um, on their homeland, you know, the Esprit de Clocher, the spirit of the church bell, defend your land. I, I, I really thought that we'd see more resilient um, Northern Hemisphere teams, but... We know the game's not over. I hope I'm firing up with my comments that the, you know, there's the British and, and, and Irish and, and French teams because, you know, um, we'd love to see great competitions and great games. But I've just been very, very disappointed in, in how limp the performance has been today. Yeah, well, if you're disappointed, imagine how we feel. Nick, thank you very much for sparing us the time. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, that was Nick Farr-Jones, the Australian-winning scrum half, who played, of course, in 1991 when they won against England in the final. David Campesi and all that. Right. Uh, some more thoughts from you. If you want to uh, join in the debate, just go to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport and you can say almost anything you like. Uh, John O50 from Birmingham, talking about Wales against Australia. Actually, this was pretty much the best performance yet by a six-nation side. I know that isn't saying a whole lot, but Wales at least looked in the same league as the Aussies, unlike England against South Africa. Uh, some more comments about the Northern Hemisphere sides. 
uh, particularly Ireland against Georgia. Ireland were beaten up, pure and simple. The Georgians were brilliant. They made Ireland look like small boys. If they'd had any half-decent midfield backs, they would have crucified Ireland. Someone has to get it into the heads of the Irish that if you're not aggressive in the tackle, you'll lose yards on every phase. Even when Ireland pushed up and had Georgia behind the gain line, the Georgians would just put down the shoulders and eke out the yards necessary to get his support outside. Still have the two Robs on the line. Rob Kitson. Ireland, just as Nick Farr-Jones was saying, I mean, if, if England are depressed, Ireland, who thought they had possibly a World Cup winning side 18 months ago, must be wondering what on earth's happened. Well, I wasn't at the game live, but, but oh, gosh, they gave them a scare, didn't they, the Georgians? And I, you know, and, and should have won, really, I think, with all the possession that they had in the second half and the, the pressure that Ireland were under with a shade more composure, you know, they would have won that match. I have to say I share uh, Nick Farr-Jones's... Uh, you know, mystification almost as to what's happened to Ireland. I mean, for anybody who saw them in Croke Park against England, OK, we're talking England, everything's relative, but it, they, they were fantastic. Uh, really slick and uh, right right on the, on the button. And you thought, here, here we go. Finally, you know, Ireland have got the, you know, the best group of players they've ever had. And it just, I th- it's just a timing issue. I, I, I do honestly think that, that the Southern Hemisphere sides, Australia in particular, who have to make the best of their, of their resources, um, you know, New Zealand have, for, for reasons that they've, they haven't won for 20 years and therefore they've got to get it right this time, and South Africa, who've, who made a mess of it last time, they've just, they've just absolutely got their timing right. Rob Bagtree, can you put any light on the question... What's wrong with Ireland? I have no idea. They, they seem mystifyingly sluggish and, and timid, which has not been their, their DNA, really, for the last four years. They, I just couldn't believe what I was watching on Saturday night. OK. Now, we did say when we uh, talked right at the beginning of uh, these podcasts that New Zealand against Portugal would be a mismatch. It was 108 to 13, 16 tries. But we were also worried about injuries. Uh, and in the end, that proved to be unfounded. Oh, it was. Uh, to be honest, if you read the score and you think, "Oh gosh, look at that, another another one-sided game," it was a really uplifting occasion. The most up- uplifting game I've watched at this World Cup. They were Portugal. They came out. They had all the hand on the on the shoulder of the of the of the man ahead of them in the queue. I thought their fly half was going to faint during the national anthem. He was so excited, and they, and they really played. They really um, stuck it on the stuck it on the All Blacks and played with, with, with real um, vim and vigour. Now, before this tournament started, you know, there's a lot of talk um, reducing the competition to 16 teams in future. You'd have a shorter World Cup. You wouldn't, um, you know, have the length of time uh, that, that perhaps, uh, you know, the, the competition holding its uh, place in the, in the public imagination. I, I have to say I've changed my mind. I think to deny sides like Portugal... Uh, that sort of stage, and, and you only have to look at Georgia. Four years ago, they had 80 points put on them by England uh, in Perth. Here, they should have beaten uh, Ireland. That's just in four years. It's, it's, it can happen. Rob to are you encouraged by the progression of the so-called minnows? Definitely. I think the make-weights have been refreshingly game, of the so-called make-weights, and they, they've shown the way forward, I think, for, for, for the Northern Hemisphere teams, that they seem to take the battle to them. I know it's all about pride on the day and, and the desire of being there, possibly only once in, in their careers. But, it, yeah, they, they, there's no reason, I think, to reduce the teams on the evidence that we've seen so far. Right, Rob, let's just let you go. You're in Paris. Obviously, you've got a lovely evening meal planned. What, uh, what's your general feeling on the World Cup so far now we've uh, had two rounds of matches? Well, as ever, it depends on your nationality. But I, I actually think that the, the World Cup, it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is taking shape. I think... 
I think we're going to see a very interesting week ahead. I think, you know, England have got all that uncertainty. France and Ireland, as we've said, that really need to perform. Uh, and, and if you look further afield, even, uh, even people like Argentina, you know, can they keep the, the, the good form of the, of the first uh, couple of games going? And I, I, think, I think it's building up. The, the, the public here are, are really uh, into it. Uh, Italy playing Portugal on Wednesday night in uh, Paris this week. They, uh, if you want a ticket, you're too late. They've already sold out. 47,000, that's not bad. Brilliant. Enjoy yourself. No problem. Thank Speak you. Speak later. Now, we were talking earlier about the uh, success or otherwise of the Northern Hemisphere nations. Let's just break off a little bit from the doom and gloom and talk about a success story with Ireland only just beating Georgia. And if that try had been allowed, Georgia, who knows, might even have won. Uh, we can speak to the ambassador for Georgia in France, the ambassador Mamuka Kudava, who joins us on the telephone now from France. Ambassador, congratulations. You must be absolutely delighted and proud of your countrymen. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I think uh, we waited for this quite an extraordinary moment for the last 15 years. But more importantly, I think this um, match was an indication that our rugby has got much better and we can even uh, frighten sometimes such a team as Ireland. What kind of coverage is the World Cup and the Georgian rugby getting back home in Georgia? It's a huge, huge uh, potential for our country, definitely, to get our message everywhere in Europe, in the world. And the uh, Irish-Georgian uh, team's uh, match yesterday was a clear example of that. The whole city and the country, of course, was um, excited about it and of course, if uh, we had been successful to put that ball in the last minute and produce the best surprise of this uh, tournament, it would have been even more whole night celebrations. It was very, very close. Rob Bagchi, what does it say about the so-called minor nations? I think a game like that shows that they're getting closer. I think that you can get very close with organisation, with uh, tenacity and, and with you know the great desire that they showed. I think the gap is is narrowing, as Brian O'Driscoll said, that the gap was narrowing between the so-called minnows and uh, the established sides. It, it's certainly narrowed between the Northern Hemisphere sides. Ambassador, what would you say to people who, who suggest that the so-called minor countries, such as Georgia, such as Namibia, should not be playing in the World Cup because there's too big a gap now? There obviously isn't. There isn't, and last night's play was a good proof of that. Even more, I would tell you, very frankly, that we can qualify even for the new tournament, which will be called Seven Nations Cup. Why not? If that uh, score is always uh, will be uh, always like that, uh, hmm. very tight game. Uh, why not to expand Six Nations Cup? Well, it's been a fantastic tournament so far, as far as your country is concerned. Many congratulations, and uh, may we wish you all the best for the future, and particularly for the future of your rugby team. Thank you very much. We still have chances now. We have two matches left. And the whole country watches uh, that very attentively. It was amazing. You, you were probably there at the stadium, not only with the Argentine, but mostly with the Irish team as the match was so tight. The whole stadium screaming, Allez les Rouges, and supporting Georgia, Georgie, Georgie. It was amazing. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you, you for talking much. to us. Thank you. Uh, just a final point, uh, Rob. I mean, once again... The World Cup is showing that it is a world game and at last there are countries around the world who you wouldn't consider being rugby-playing nations who it, it is now beginning to affect. 
Is that the crumb of comfort that we're going to take? That the, the, well, the game I'm trying is, to think of something. That's the one thing we can take from this week, I'm afraid. <laughs> OK, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, I know if you're listening around the world, if you're South African and you're uh, Australian, you just think, well... That's sod you, is your problem, not ours. Uh, as far as the games coming up are concerned, it's Scotland against Romania on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Italy against Portugal. Thursday, Wales against Japan. Friday, France against Ireland could be interesting. And then next Saturday, England, Samoa, South Africa, Tonga, Argentina against Namibia. Thanks very much indeed for taking time out of your busy schedules, all of you, to listen to us. If you want to say something, you can blog us, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport we'll speak to you next time when we hope the northern hemisphere gloom will be lifted but i doubt it bye-bye you've been listening to the rugby world cup show sponsored by magnus time to play go to magnuscider.com